It's Wednesday, October 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Pandora Papers have hit, and it's shedding light on the financial secrets of world leaders, politicians, fugitives, and con artists. Leaked records show how big power players are stashing assets in secret shell companies, offshore tax havens, and trusts with governments doing little to stop it. Through these documents, we are seeing country leaders on five continents using the offshore system, including King Abdullah II of Jordan, spending millions on luxury homes in California. We are also learning how South Dakota is a key player where people are moving money to secretive American trust companies. Michael Hudson, senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the group who led the effort in obtaining these documents, joins us for what's in the Pandora Papers. Next, get ready for mail delays and price hikes coming to the U.S. Postal Service. In an effort to cut costs over the next 10 years, first-class mail will be slowed down and there will be less reliance on planes used to transport mail across the country. Price hikes are also coming to stamps and package delivery just in time for the holiday season. This plan and the Postmaster General have both received criticism. Ellen Iones, reporter at Vox, joins us for what to expect and who is affected most. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In addition to, you know, we, we read through the documents. We, we consulted with experts. We used public documents to compare to, to the secret documents. You know, we tracked down, uh, you know, really hard to, hard to trace sources around the world. We looked through court records. Joining us now is Michael Hudson, senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the Pandora Papers. This is a huge investigation that you guys just dropped in partnership with a lot of other news outlets. It really is looking at millions of leaked documents, looking into the financial secrets of a lot of people, 35 current and former world leaders, 330 politicians and public officials in 91 countries and territories. We have a global lineup of fugitives, con artists, murderers. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here. And we're talking about offshore accounts, places where people start hiding money so they can avoid taxes. Uh, Just so much that goes into this. So, uh, Michael, start us off by talking to us about the scope of the documents and some of the details that we're seeing. And then we'll get into some key takeaways because there's a lot to go through. Uh, Yeah, these are documents that, that, you know, first of all, the the offshore system, it's, uh, you know, in some cases people use it for, you know, they're on the up and up. They're using it to do business, you know, across borders, that kind of things. But often, too often, the offshore system is used to help people dodge taxes. It's used to launder money. It's used to cover up uh, the movement of proceeds of financial crimes like Ponzi schemes and uh, the looting of, of, you know, public funds by public officials. And so we've got almost 12 million files from 14 different offshore services providers. That's like law firms and wealth management advisors and others that basically are like the middlemen. They're the fixers who help people who want to go offshore, help them set up uh, offshore companies, offshore trusts, and other kinds of things. And often sort of not just say, oh, you get here, you know, it's $1,200. Here's an offshore company. They actually set up sort of layers like an offshore company owns, you know, is owned by a trust. 
and then the trust is controlled by another offshore company. And of course, all along the way, the people involved with these different entities are often not the real people who control the money or, or who are benefiting from this, but they're actually uh, what, what are called nominee directors and nominee shareholders who are really just front men. Their job is to basically say, okay, you can use my name, you can attach my name to that company. Right. And then when law enforcement authorities or a court order comes to me, I can honestly say, I have no idea what goes on with that company. It's just my name. How do you go about obtaining these documents? Are they done through subpoenas? And, you know, I mean, the United States Freedom of Information request. I mean, how do you go about getting this stuff? Because obviously this stuff comes out. It makes a lot of people look really bad. Some of that's going to have to remain a mystery. I can tell you, we didn't get it through any sort of uh, subpoena or anything like that. That we we did, you know, we we worked our sources and eventually uh, got, you know, a series of document dumps that came to us. These are our confidential secret documents that came to us from a, basically, four, as I said, 14 different right. service providers around the world, from the the Caribbean to the South South China Sea, and just all around the world. You know, and the other thing that happens is you just don't take these documents and you say, here, there's all these names in these documents. We actually did reporting. We spent two years working on this project. In addition to, you know, we, we read through the documents. We, we consulted with experts. We used public documents to compare to, to the secret documents. You know, we tracked down, uh, you know, really hard to, hard to trace sources around the world. We looked through court records. And we had the resources to do this because we we were able to put together a team of 150 news outlets around the world, including the Washington Post, the BBC, the Guardian, Radio France, the Indian Express. And in all, we had more than 600 journalists right. in 117 countries and territories, which is the biggest, it's the biggest journalism investigator reporting uh, project in history. Let's talk a little bit about some of these key finding there, uh, findings here. So there's a lot of big leaders of countries who have been caught up in this. So we're looking at the uh, King of Jordan, King Abdullah II. We're looking at uh, leaders from Kenya, Ecuador, the Czech Republic, uh, people tied to Vladimir Putin as well. And also former prime minister, British prime minister, Tony Blair. I'll tell you a little, we'll dive a little deeply into the King of Jordan. The, you know, the King of Jordan, the documents in our reporting shows that an accountant in Switzerland worked with lawyers in the British Virgin Islands to help the king secretly purchase 14 luxury homes worth more than $106 million altogether in the U.S. and the U.K., including three side-by-side, a trio of luxury homes on the beach in Malibu, California. The advisors also helped him set up 36 shell companies from 1995 to 2017. And we see in the emails, you know, they were really trying to keep his name on the down low. Some of the offshore advisors that were helping him simply use the code name, you know who. (laughs) Jordan receives a lot of financial aid from a lot of different countries and whatnot. They say, I guess, that the King of Jordan bought these properties and all this stuff with his own personal fortune. But you know, and, th- this all makes everybody and, and look real bad. Yeah. And, and his attorneys say, oh, by the way, he's not required to pay taxes under Jordanian law because he's the king. And that's understandable. But as one of our experts on sort of political authority in the Middle East said, look, despite the fact that he doesn't have to pay taxes, he has reason not to flaunt his wealth, to keep his wealth undercover, because both his citizens and the donors, the places like the U.S., uh, foundations, et cetera, that, that are putting aid money into Jordan are going to be kind of upset when they hear that, oh, he's got all these luxury properties around the world. So we're looking at offshore accounts. We're also looking at people setting up trusts as well. And the United States became a key player in that specifically South Dakota, 
which uh, is just kind of an interesting one. And, you know, some of these other states that were involved in this are, are, are Florida, Nevada was another one, Texas um, that involved in this. But tell me about South Dakota specifically and how they figure into this. You know, South Dakota is a state that is kind of in the last five years or so has sort of to some degree turned itself into kind of like a Cayman, Cayman Islands on the Great Plains. If you uh, live in another country and you want to cast a shadow, essentially hide some of your assets, you can get a trust in South Dakota, you know, and um, it will protect your money. It will generally protect your identity. And so we've seen, you know, lots and lots of uh, foreign officials, uh, folks with with sort of sketchy backstories have been accused of, of wrongdoing in their home countries, you know, moving money to U.S. states like like South Dakota. How does the U.S. system, you know, allow for all of this? Uh, you know, pr- you always kind of envision this happening, as I mentioned, uh, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, you know, uh, things like in the Bahamas are usually what we think of when we're talking about tax havens. You know, how does that migrate itself here? Like, w- you know, w- with our U.S. laws, at least. Yeah, when somebody says offshore tax haven, they're, they're usually going to get an image <laughs> in their mind of like palm trees, right? Yeah, Because they're exactly. thinking it's an island, right? Uh, or, or maybe, you know, like Switzerland, like, you know, snow-capped Alps or something. But, you know, the United States, individual states have been able to uh, give the rest of the, the offshore havens in the world a run for their money. And right now, the laws in the U.S., on the federal level, they're trying to tighten up and make it harder for the states to essentially uh, hide the owners of offshore companies, of companies created in, in Nevada or Delaware, but still, there are a lot of loopholes, and it's pretty easy for someone overseas to sort of hide their money, hide their assets here in the United States. And that's interesting because the United States has kind of kind of gone, you know, been sort of styled itself as the global policeman of the offshore world. It's gone after banks in Switzerland for, you know, hiding uh, American assets from, from the IRS. It's gone after, you know, the British Virgin Islands and other sort of these, these sort of offshore paradises for their role in the offshore system. Meanwhile. There are a lot of states that are drawing in a lot of money for the U.S. and just have become cogs in this this sort of global system. Right. You know, one of the other interesting things, too, talks about a um, a notorious art dealer named Douglas Latchford and a link to looted Cambodian artifacts and the Met and, you know, them displaying some of this stuff. Some of uh, some of the um, offshore dealings that he was doing set up after, you know, people started looking into him. You know, there's so much into this. It's very fascinating because, you know, art is a commodity. You know, yes, it, it, it is art. It's something to look at, beautiful to look at or think about. But it's also uh, a lot of sort of art and artifacts and sort of antiquities from ancient times are uh, being held through offshore entities, through owned by offshore companies. In some cases, it may be a way to, to save on taxes. In some cases, it may be a way to avoid laws about trafficking in uh, antiquities that ha- in one way or another have been you know, spirited away or even looted from countries like Cambodia. So our story about these uh, antiquities from, from you know, ancient Cambodia, you know, literally a millennia ago, a thousand, you know, that, that were made a thousand years ago, does show a connections to the offshore world and, and how uh, antiquities and, and, and other great, great art is, you know, kind of moved around, bought and sold and hidden. What are the next steps? I'm sure a lot of people are going to start getting into these stories. There's probably going to be investigations. Are you guys going to continue to do reporting on this? There's, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more to explore. Absolutely. So we're going to we're going to keep reporting. We're going to keep putting out stories and we're going to keep 
uh, following up. You know, a lot of uh, investigative reporting involves doing a big story, kind of getting a lot of attention, and then moving on to the next story, and then coming back two years later and saying, oh, well, nothing really happened, all the promises that were made of reform. So we really try to, you know, just stick with a story and ride it and keep going. So we've been writing, writing about, reporting and writing about the offshore world for almost a decade now. And uh, we, we feel like it's important. You know, things don't change without sort of sort of a a, uh, a continuous sort of pressure, a little pressure here and there, mere spasms of reform don't really do anybody you know that much good. You've got to keep the pressure on. And there's a, there's the old saying, you know, politicians see the light when they when they feel the heat. So well, we're just going to continue reporting and do the best we can to uh, keep these issues, you know, boiling. Michael Hudson, senior editor at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It does have to deliver to any address, any postal address that's in its mandate. And now private companies like FedEx and UPS they don't have to do that. They can say, well, we're not going to deliver to P.O. boxes and things of that nature. Joining us now is Ellen Iones, reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Hi, nice to be here. Let's talk about the U.S. Postal Service. It's going to get a lot slower. All, you know, It already started, actually, this past Friday. We're going to start seeing a slowing down of first-class mail. So we're talking about things like letters, small packages, bills, tax documents. This is all due to a plan by Postmaster General Louis DeJoy in an effort to cut costs over the next 10 years. So typically you'd see something in first class mail be delivered in one to three days. It's going to be more like one to five days now. Uh, So Ellen, help us walk through some of this. Why are we seeing these changes and what are we expecting? In terms of why this is happening, um, Postmaster General DeJoy, who took over that role last year in June, is implementing these changes or trying to implement these changes because um, he's predicting this $160 billion budget shortfall over the next 10 years. And the post office um, is already facing a lot of financial problems and insecurity. So, you know, there is a need for some sort of action and there are different types that we'll talk about later. But uh, right now, what's happening, as you mentioned, is this slowdown. So for lots of, well, let's say a majority of people, they probably won't notice any uh, changes with that first class mail. It'll still be delivered within that one to three day window. But for some addresses, especially in rural areas, that is going to expand to uh, between one and five days. So it is really a big difference if you're mailing a bill or waiting on your medication delivery or something like that. And the reason that'll happen, logistically speaking, is because the USPS wants to rely less on air transport then uh, and shift more of that to ground transport. The reason being air transport can be very expensive and it can be unreliable with weather delays and air traffic and stuff like that. So theoretically, it would be cheaper and more reliable to transport this stuff, this mail by by trucks or ground transit. You know, and and we're talking about how many people would be affected by this, right? So about 40% of people uh, 40% of first-class mail 
could be affected by this. But, you know, when you're talking about those rural people, people in uh, other communities, they're the ones that rely on the USPS the most. So unfortunately, it's going to target, you know, it's going to hit them the worst. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so the thing about the Postal Service is one reason it's so great is because it does have to deliver to any address, any postal address that's in its mandate. And now private companies like FedEx and UPS, they don't have to do that. They can say, we're not going to deliver to PO boxes and things of that nature. And it's also expensive. The great thing about the USPS is it's relatively inexpensive. It's, you know, it's one of the cheapest ways to deliver mail in the industrialized world. And so it would really mark a big blow to especially rural communities and uh, a lot of the times tribal areas. This is a really important lifeline. And even on that front, when we're talking about price, you know, we're going to see price increases on stamps. I think they might go up about three cents. Not too much, right? But they're saying that there could be price increases twice a year in January and July. And we're getting right into the holiday season where, you know, people are sending packages all the time. There could be price increases on on package deliveries. That's right. Yeah. Looking at about a dollar, which, you know, for some people isn't a lot, but for a lot of people, that is significant. And if you're mailing, you know, several packages or receiving other packages, those costs are coming to individual individual people. And, and that makes things tougher. And you're going to have to make decisions about what you want to send and when. So that can really add up for people. So what's in store for the Postal Service going forward? You know, we've been talking about how first class mail is going to be slowed down a little bit, the communities it's going to be impacted by. But the Postal Service is already in a big money crunch. It doesn't look like it's going to get any better. The plan that Postmaster General DeJoy put forward has been gaining some criticism. He's getting some criticism. You know, it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. That's right. And it's a difficult kind of pinch that the USPS is in because it is heavily regulated in terms of when it can increase prices and how much. It also has this pension fund that it pays into to help retirees, postal service retirees. And that is a um, it's a big cost to the postal service. And the only way that that can change is through legislative action. It can't the postmaster general can't say, you know, we're going to do things differently. We're going to change the way we pay into this this pension structure. So, you know, unfortunately, that is pretty static for now. There was some legislative action moving on that um, early last year, right before the pandemic hit. And unfortunately, that got shuffled to the side and it's kind of in purgatory now. It's a big cost and the U.S. Postal Service doesn't really have as much flexibility to do those price increases uh, like a private company would have. So that's a challenge as well. And there is an acknowledgement that, yes, prices do need to increase. But there's a question um, in terms of kind of oversight of the USPS. There is a question as to whether the mail slowdown is really going to change anything in terms of financial, you know, making up for that loss. Ellen Iona's reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.